morning. We're very glad you're here. Turn to Psalm 133, please. In a sense, we'll just continue in song as we go there. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we counted a huge privilege uh, to gather here this morning. Lord, you're the reason that we gather. Our aim as we sing, our aim as we engage the word, our aim as that word is preached, our aim as we pray, our aim as we give, our aim as we fellowship is, is your glory. My hope is that this morning that your light is shining bright in this people. My hope is that we are true in the words we just sang. My hope is that there's understanding that we're being built up in Christ as one. Lord, I pray for uh, Steve Lawson this morning over at Grace. I pray that they're worshiping wholeheartedly. I pray uh, for his marriage. I pray for his kids. I pray that they're uh, humbly serving you. And I pray that their people are joining together in that same song this morning, also united in Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would allow me to do some justice to this beautiful three verses uh, breathed out by you uh, for the good of your people and for your glory. We love you very, very much. We kind of a great privilege to be here, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 133 says this. <clears throat> this is a song of ascent of David, and it says, Behold, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's a short psalm, three verses. If you're lucky, it may be a short sermon. When I read it to my wife first, she said, you're going to get a whole sermon out of that? And uh, I think uh, we got some serious beauties to behold this morning. I'm thankful this morning as we consider this psalm uh, that we're not considering some far distant concept that's completely foreign to this body. I'm wanting to begin with encouragement in the body. I see something worth beholding in this body. And I'm really, really thankful for it. I see people walking together, dwelling in unity, caring for one another, holding each other accountable, um, interpenetrating one another's lives. This morning, um, I was thinking that, you know, we've had lots of sermons on things like unity. I mean, Ephesians 4 that Brad preached a while back, all the perichoresis stuff. But God's always doing something He's, as Steve and I were talking about this morning, he's always revealing his grace, and he does it in a people. And this morning, my hope is not just that we gain another nugget of truth on unity, but that we really behold it, that we really step back and marvel at what God would have us marvel according to his breathed out word. So it's not a reactive sermon. It's not like, oh, okay, I'm going to preach. Well, I'm going to preach on this. I don't think people are being nice enough to each other. That's not the case. That's not the case. It's not reactive. 
I see families walking with one another, not quarreling, not divisive, but guarding the deposit, loving one another as you have been loved. And it is indeed good and pleasant. With this encouragement comes the reminder that this amazing work is not just ours. I encourage you and I commend you, but I want us to be very mindful that it doesn't stop with any of us. It's our gift from the hand of God. He does the heavy lifting, not us. We're beholding God's handiwork as we consider these three verses. We're not beholding how great this people can be on our own. On our own, apart from God, we're totally depraved, totally without hope, not being built up into anything. But with God, this is, this is his handiwork. That's what we're beholding. And as the creator and sustainer of unity, I hope that God, through this psalm, encourages us uh, to experience in generational fullness what each of us have experienced at least in part, to dwell in that place that maybe many of us have only visited. I'm wanting to consider Psalm 133 this morning in light of John 15. It's on purpose. It's not just a open the Psalms, pick one, and let's preach. We're considering this in light of where we've been in John 15. If you'll turn over to John 15 while keeping your finger at Psalm 133, uh, here at Cross Point, we believe in expository, verse-by-verse verse, uh, preaching of the Word. Uh, because of that, we've been in the book of John f- since Cross Point started. And uh, we've been in John 15 for, I don't know, months anyway. And uh, in verses 5 through 12, I want us to consider what we're studying, Psalm 133, in light of where God has this body through that expository preaching. It says this in verse 5. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you people can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy, or that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Studying Psalm 133 in light of John 15, before we dive into the text, we need to understand it glorifies God to dwell in unity. There's greater fruitfulness as we dwell in unity. God's proven disciples are the ones who dwell in unity. One cannot abide in God's love and dwell in divisiveness. In this unity, we experience true and full joy, and we love as the Father has loved as we dwell in unity. In John, we've been learning to think corporately rather than individually. We're not a bunch of self-actualizing individuals running around learning just what it means for me. We're, We're engaging the word as a people, and we're learning to think corporately, not just individually. When we read, reflect on, and utilize a psalm, we're joining in a song. We're joining in a song, which is the song of a people, because our story is the story of a people. And this song that we're joining in is not a solo. It screams for harmony where all who utter it do so as members of a chorus, many different voices spanning age, race, and generations, heard by our Lord, according to Romans 15, as one voice. 
So when God is on his throne and he's hearing his people worship, he's not like, oh, I love all of the different voices. What he's saying is, it is so sweet to hear generations and age and, and, and just all these things go away as the people gather and, and he hears one voice unified in Christ. The psalm uh, is completely corporate. This psalm that we're engaging this morning is completely corporate and I'm warning you ahead of time because if you read it as an individual, you're really going to miss out on the beauty you're called to behold in it. You cannot read it as an individual. Consider these following points and I, I want you to ask yourself, this is where we interact in the sermon. I want you to ask yourself, do I default to thinking corporately or do I default to thinking individually? In Matthew 28, where it says, go into the world, go into all the world and make disciples. Do you think, I have to go into all the world and make disciples? Or do you think in terms of we as a church need to make sure we're doing this? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Do you think that means you can't sleep anymore? Do you immediately take them and say, oh my goodness, I gotta, I gotta pray more. Or do you consider that it's very important that you're a part of a church who's a part of an even greater church that is continually aware of God's presence and continually in conversation and communication with him, both listening and letting your request be made heard? Care for widows and orphans in their affliction. It's not designed to just be your pet project. It's what we as a people are about. Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's pleasing to God. Do you think I must present my body as a living sacrifice? Or do you hear that call of a people as we, plural, present our bodies as one unified living sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord? The psalm's completely corporate. And we can't think like individuals. The psalm was also written by David. And we're going to jump into what David has to say. All songwriters need inspiration, something, significance, um, something of significance to observe. Without outside influence and inspiration, there would never be any new songs written. But here, God has influenced a people, and David found it worthy of a new song. When we first moved to Greenville, uh, we had lived in an apartment in Dallas. We'd been married for just a few months, not very long. And, uh, and we moved to Greenville, the thriving metropolis. And uh, we got here, and we were looking, and we were like, whoa, we could live in a house? Like a real house? That's crazy. And so we were in our house, and uh, I had, we got a grill uh, when we got married as a gift. So I had a house and a grill. So, I mean, I'm living life at this point. And, um, and so we decided to have some friends over for dinner. And um, the, the Holtz were here, and the Spear family was here. And so we had uh, Cody and Jennifer and Chad and Samantha over for dinner. And I was just excited. I was like, man, we're having people over at our house, and we're going to grill. So I was like, what should we grill? I'm like, just let's empty it. Let's just grill everything. Let's, let's do beef, strips, and sausage, and pork chops. Let's just fill the, let's just have a feast. And uh, I didn't know Samantha didn't eat meat, so I failed there. <laughs> but with Chad, I've shared this example before in teaching. I think it was on the, in the Genesis study, but with Chad, it was a home run. And uh, if y'all know Chad, you can imagine that. And, and he scoots back from the table midway through the meal. So he got his belly all pushed out. He's, he wasn't done. He's just taking a breather. And he scoots back. He's got sauce running down his face. And he goes, oh, it's so good. I want to write a song about it. <laughs> I'll never, ever forget that. In effect, that's what David's done here. David is saying that is so good. I want to write a song about it. 
David is looking at this unique happening of brothers dwelling in unity. And David says, that, I want to write a song about that. The Spirit leads me to write a song about that. And consider his opening word. His first word is behold. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold. This psalm, as I've said previously, is a song of a sense. It's also classified as a wisdom psalm. Literally, the Song of Ascents were used um, during three very special occasions, um, three times per year when the Israelites, okay, you've got Jerusalem, or Israel, you've got Jerusalem, Judea, you've got this geographical area, and you've got these God-fearing Israelites that live in this general geographical area, and three times a year, by God's design, they were supposed to come together and climb the hill there and go to Jerusalem, which is like a capital there, and they go to Jerusalem to worship. And it was for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and Passover. So literally, the Song of Ascents was used as they ascend the hill and come together to worship. So when he says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, he's talking about one of these three occurrences, literally. This would be a gathering of God's people for the sake of wholehearted worship of the one true God. And if not for God, frankly, there would be no desire for them to come together and worship. They just stay in this general geographical area, maybe go, maybe come, I don't know. But this gathering, this climbing the hill to gather, that's God prompted. Symbolically, this is a song that represents the sanctification of God's people. Literally, it's a song of a sense that would have been used at those three events, but symbolically it represents something even greater where we are being sanctified. Their growth and their holiness their understanding as they move towards their eternal dwelling, growing in Christ-likeness. That's what's being beheld here. We take all of that into account. We must consider that with a wisdom song, God is telling us it is wise for us to take some time to behold such a thing as brotherly unity. It is worth beholding this morning. So why do we behold it? In short, it's a thing worth beholding. You don't regularly hear, behold, lunch, unless you haven't eaten in a few days. Or behold, a red light. Why? Well, because these are common daily occurrences. Common daily occurrences. Sadly, brothers dwelling in unity is not the norm. I think we could all confess that. Brothers dwelling in unity is not the norm. God's saying it's not the norm, but when you see it, you better behold it because it's beautiful and it's the way I intended it to be. The common occurrence is division. When David became king, the kingdom was divided. Some preferred Saul, some David. David was regularly plotted against. And at one point, even his wife called him out in front of a large crowd at an important event where they're bringing the ark from Obed-Edom. It's a time, and they're like, you are not acting the way you should. So for him to experience division and, and, and things that aren't really perfectly, seemingly unified was pretty normal. But... You don't have to turn there, but listen to what 1 Chronicles 14.2 says. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. David knew why he was king. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So what happens with God's people is important. God appointed a specific king at a specific time for the sake of his people. Ultimately for the sake of his own glory. 
King David had a knowledge and understanding of what God was doing and why he was the king of Israel. King David was far less concerned about his own dignity and his own honor and his own glory. A man after God's own heart, David was, like God, most concerned with God's glory. He did not define his own purposes. They had been defined for him by God. So rather than an earthly kingdom joining together, gathering to submit to and honor an earthly king, Israel was a heavenly kingdom gathering to submit to and honor the king of kings. When we forget this, division is soon to follow. When we forget that we're gathering to honor the king of kings, that this is not just an earthly thing, this is a heavenly, divine, eternal happening with eternal blessing as is indicated in this psalm. When we forget that, we gather for our own reasons. When we begin to define why we gather, when we begin to define just what exactly we're going to do or study, when we gather and we're not submitting to the Lord, division is very soon to follow because the gatherings will dwindle. Well, I don't want that. I want this. And it's just defined by what you want. And the gatherings dwindle. We're beholding how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Consider who is involved when we're beholding. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Why do we call ourselves brothers and sisters? We're sitting here together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters? Because we have the same Father, God the Father, who, according to Ephesians 4, gives unity as a gift, to Christ, gift in Christ to his children. Brad preached a great message on it. They're all online. Go listen to it. I'm not going to try to re-preach it. But God gives unity as a gift to those who are in Christ, to his children. We cannot create it, muster it, or facilitate it any more than we could make our fellow man into an actual brother. We're called to receive it as a gift from our Heavenly Father and preserve it by dwelling rightly. Receive it as a gift and preserve it by dwelling rightly. The Corinthian church had a problem with this. They did not do so well in receiving that gift and dwelling rightly. The Corinthian church was really, really jacked up, to put it plainly. And one commentator is talking about how Paul, Paul commands them. He's saying, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You have been changed. Live like it. And one commentator says that Paul can command the church to live in unity because there already is an actual spiritual unity in Christ which exists among genuine believers. It's already there. Bridges states it even more simply. He just says, be in behavior what you are in your state of being. Be in behavior what you are in your state of being. Act like who you actually are. In short, division misrepresents God the Father. Division is a church, a bunch of brothers and sisters saying, our dad didn't do enough and our dad failed. But what are we beholding this morning? When Israel is true to its calling, when God's children are true to their essence in Christ, it is both good and pleasant. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is both good and pleasant. One of the things we might notice is that the good thing is not always the pleasant thing, right? As is the case with discipline. Hebrews says that at the time, all discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that means that what is good is not always pleasant. We're children of a father who cares about us. If he didn't care about us, he wouldn't do that. It's good, but it's not necessarily pleasant for us at the time. In like manner, what is always pleasant is not what is always good, as is the case with sin. 
we could probably begin to blush as we think about those things that are pleasing, but probably not good. Those things that are enjoyable, but probably not good, according to God's design. So the good thing is not always the pleasant thing. And the pleasant thing is definitely not always the good thing. However, when brothers dwell in unity, it is both good and pleasant. See the picture when you are here, gathered in Christ, of a blessing upon a blessing, ordained by the hand of God. It is worth beholding. When we abandon God's ways, we pursue our own desires, when we begin to define what's good, and when we begin to define what is pleasant, and when we disregard, well, if it's not pleasant and good, at least it's one or the other, the vision is soon to follow, mainly because our desires can be an endless list. If, if I just said, oh, forget preaching, what do y'all want to do this morning? We have everything ranging from donuts to sing more songs to whatever. But we don't get to, to, to define that. God is saying it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. But our list of desires can be endless. There's always a greater preference. We don't need major differences in preference to be divided. For the church in Corinth, it was as simple as, I prefer a more eloquent Apollos. And then someone else says, I don't care about the eloquence. I prefer this more straight-shooting Paul. He's not as eloquent, but he gets to the point. Two guys preaching on the goodness of Christ, and it's, I'm on his team. I'm on his team. It's like, why are we divided over something so frivolous? It's preference of style of teaching, yet we can be divided over it. It doesn't have to be something major. There can be division over leadership. There can be division over doctrine. Ooh, careful. There can be division over opinion. Everyone has one. There can be division over meeting times. I don't like that church. They meet at, 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 at nine. Really, it's a great reason. There can be division over ministry approach. There can be division over worship style. There can be division over building design, color of carpet. You name it, and we can probably figure out a way to be divided over it. Sadly, it's the flesh. The flesh and the spirit work against each other to try to keep the other from doing what it wants to do is what the scriptures say. Don't ignore the battle. Don't ignore it. Don't be like, oh, we have unity. We don't worry about those things. No, you're going to worry about it. It's going to rear its ugly head. But if we live by the spirit, we're called to walk by the spirit. So if we're dwelling in unity, we're walking by the spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God, and, God is one, and his children are one. God is one, and his children are to be one. And when we allow God to define what is good, and when we allow God to define what is pleasant, and then when we gather at that table to feast on those things, there's a really sweet unity that rightly puts his glory on display. God defines good. God defines pleasant. We feast at that table, and God's honored. See the blessing upon the blessing. So I would ask this question, is, <laughs> it's a dumb question. It's a really dumb question. Is this your experience with church? Is this your experience when you consider your life of church good and pleasant? I'm led to believe that many would say that their relationship with God is good and pleasant. Oh, me and him, we're fine. But church people, ugh, can't stand them. I'm led to believe that many would, would say that their relationship with God is good and pleasant, but 
goodness and pleasantries are not the first thing that come to mind when you consider your church experiences. For many, bad church experiences are the norm. It's the norm. Divisions and arguing and church splits are commonplace. Most people in Greenville go to a church for about three or four years. Someone makes them mad. Something happens. They go to another one. Three, four years, bam, another one. Three, four years, bam, another one. That's not God's design. You may have had some good reason to leave, which we'll talk about briefly here in a minute, but that's not God's design. So if you look back and you say, my experience with God is God is good and pleasant, and I love the Lord, I fear the Lord, but the church, good and pleasant, that's a stretch. Those people are all sinners. To those of you in that place, I would offer this morning that there is something more beautiful to behold. God calls us to behold it. He's not calling you to behold something that doesn't exist. God's not playing some cosmic trick on us where he's like, behold, but there's nothing there. He does something in a people. He changes people. We are unified in Christ. And he says to behold it. So if you're in that place where you're like, a good and pleasant church experience, I I want you to consider that there's something more beautiful worth seeking and there's something more beautiful worth beholding. Don't forget that we're a bunch of sinners gathered, submitting to God. Don't forget that you're sitting by a sinner and you too are a sinner. Gomers ministering to Gomers, per our sermon a few weeks ago. What's being marveled at here is brothers who dwell in unity. They're dwelling in unity. We're not marveling at and beholding an instance where they seemed unified. That's not what's being beheld here. Oh, look, 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 look. They seem unified. Oh, well, someone said something. It's over. We're not marveling and beholding that season where the church just decides to visit unity for a little bit. What we're marveling and beholding is when we dwell in unity, when brothers dwell in unity, dwell. Unity is not like that ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. You know, when you're driving and... and it's real cloudy, but that one ray just breaks through like it's pointing straight at something. As kids, we used to be like, that's heaven, look, it's heaven. But it's not like that one ray that breaks through, that even though it's beautiful, you know, it's just going to go away. You know, it's going to rain more later. It was nice while it lasted. It's not like that. I grew up in a house of four boys. I have three little brothers. And uh, much like many churches, we could uh, fight over just about anything. And we could be divided over anything. And one, you know, once there were four of us, it was two on two. And it's really hard for a while. It was two on one. And, and uh, I remember my parents saying that, that we, we could really fight over just about anything. And I also remember my parents saying that the sweetest moments in the Sutton household were when we were sleeping. <laughs> but unity is, unity is not just an absence of conflict. And dwelling is much like abiding. Hear this in light of... John 15, abide in his love, abide in his word. Dwelling is much like abiding. In a sense, what you're saying is, this is where I'm setting up camp. This is where I'm putting down roots. And if the weather changes, I'm not just skipping town because this is where I'm setting up camp and putting down roots. If the weather changes, I'm not skipping town. To dwell in unity is to boldly state, you know what, we're one in Christ, And if I have a question about doctrine, I'll ask the question. If I have a concern about ministry approach, 
I will go to the Bible and then let my concern be made known if I still see it as a biblical concern. If I don't like the color of the paint, it's not a good reason to leave. That's, a, that's what we're boldly stating. Because well, the thing will jump in your head, maybe just leave, man, it'd be easier. People do it in friendships, people do it in marriage, people do it in church. Let's, let's bounce. This is horrible. It'll be better at least for a while somewhere else. It's not sufficient reason to leave. This is a hard one right here. If the leadership decides to go in a different direction than is my personal choice, yet is still within the bounds of faithfulness, then I'll submit to the leadership, not bail on it. That's hard, right? I was thinking about it this morning, and I don't want to go into it too much. Dangerous. But if there's different measures of faith, we're not all going to have the exact same opinion on the way we should do something if there's different measures of faith, right? So here, I'm seeing that leadership can have a measure of faith that decides to go in a specific direction, and someone else who is also in the faith can say, no, I don't think so. But if it's within the bounds of faithfulness, you don't just say, I'm gone. That's just, I don't know. You submit. If you're never willing to submit to anything, you'll be divided eventually. We submit to the Lord. Really, does anyone here say, oh, I love everything that God tells me to do. It's all so easy and wonderful and pleasing. My life is easy because I do exactly what God tells me to do. No, it's hard. You submit. It may not have been your first choice, but you say, you know what? I see that there's a greater design here. I see that God's in charge of this, and I want to make sure that I submit to what God has said, not bail on it. When we're dwelling like abiding, we're saying, I, I will pray for my church. You pray for your church, whether you're a member here or somewhere else and you're visiting? Do you pray? Have you prayed for your church? I'll even admonish the church if it's needed. Things are really out of line. I'll admonish. And I'm okay as a member working hard for repentance where it is needed. We're a bunch of sinners. When sin comes up, it's not like, I can't believe that. No, we're called to put it to death. Like going to the hospital, oh, there's all these sick people. Yeah, it's a hospital. This is a church where sinners gather to submit to the Lord, to help each other, to be held accountable, and to put sin to death. It'll come up, but we put it to death. And we work hard for the beauty of the bride to make sure that we're really repenting and not just talking about it. There will be things along the way where corporately we have to repent and turn from those things and follow Jesus wholeheartedly, confessing that sin and holding each other accountable in the process no matter how hard it is. And on the very, very, very rare occasion where all of these things have actually been exhausted, on that rare occasion where you may feel like God's calling you to find a church that's more true to His Word and His will, we must work tirelessly to close the loop because divisiveness is not becoming of the children of God at all. The love that we have for each other in Christ is not a love that comes and goes. It's a love that dwells. It dwells. The last two verses of the psalm are similes. Similes helping to more clearly define just how good and just how pleasant it is when we dwell in unity. Short little psalm. Two similes to close it off. The first says this in verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, 
running down on the collar of his robes. I was going to have Aaron up here pour oil on his beard. He said no. (laughs) However, it's like the precious oil. This oil that we're talking about here was used, uh, it was an anointing oil, and it was consecrated, set apart. The oil was only to be used on holy things. You were never, ever to use this oil that they used to consecrate Aaron, the high priest, on something common or blemished or messed up or commonplace daily. This was used on only the holy things, things set apart. For the high priest like Aaron, the oil was touched on his head as an anointing, setting them apart for something special, particularly to oversee true wholehearted worship. At this point, the high priest was set apart for the special service of Jehovah. And Spurgeon makes an observation that even so, those who dwell in unity, that thing we're supposed to be beholding this morning, those who dwell in unity are better fitted to glorify God and his church. In the same way that that anointing oil was placed on the head of the high priest, he was at that point set apart, better fitted to glorify God in the service he'd been called to. In the same manner, by way of simile, in verse 2 of 133, we are better fitted, more readied when we are together dwelling in unity to glorify God. Your created purpose on this earth, if, if no one's told you yet, your purpose is to glorify God. You're not defining your own purposes. Your purpose is to glorify God in everything he calls you to. We're better fitted to do that as we dwell in unity. That's what this is saying. Look at what the oil does. It does not stay confined to the head, but like a fragrant blessing, it runs down the head, over the beard, and onto the robes. This is a picture of abundance. This is a really beautiful picture, and I really hope we behold it this morning. When we dwell together in unity, it is so good. When we dwell together in unity, it is so pleasant that it affects those who did not even intend to be affected by it. Really. It affects those who did not even intend to be affected by it. A unified dwelling of leadership flows out of elders and deacons and staff and small group shepherds onto each other and onto the congregation and onto those who are visiting and onto family members and onto friends and onto coworkers and onto the community at large. It is a well of blessing and it is worth beholding. There's nothing insignificant about it. And we shouldn't go day after day after day ignoring it. It is worth beholding and it is a well of blessing. Verse 3 is another simile. It says this. It is like the dew of Hermon. We're familiar with Hermon, right? I wasn't. I had to look it up. Um, It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. This is where you're reminded that sometimes it takes some work to be able to appreciate what's in the word. Because no one reads that and it's like, oh, yes, yes, the dews of Hermon. Herman, the, the flow and the dew. Yes, the dew. Uh, yeah, it's like the dew of Herman. The setting is that the mountains of Zion are like mere foothills compared to these snow-capped mountains of Herman. Okay? This is another picture of blessing flowing down and down and down and down and affecting greatly. I found an account from this guy named Henry Baker Tristran. We're all familiar with him too. In 1867, having camped at the base of Mount Hermon. And this was what he wrote, probably in a journal of some sort. The vapor coming in contact with the snowy side. Listen to these words, because it's like just this perfect illustration. The dew is like the blessing that happens when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. 
the vapor coming in contact with the snowy sides of the mountain is rapidly congealed and is precipitated in the evening in the form of a dew, the most copious we ever experienced. It penetrated everywhere. It saturated everything. The floor of our tent was soaked. Our beds were covered with it. Our guns were dripping. And the little dewdrops hung about everywhere. No wonder the foot of Hermon is clad with orchards and gardens of such marvelous fertility in this land of droughts. That's good. That's a really sweet account. Why? It penetrated everywhere. It saturated everything. A welcomed blessing in a land of droughts. So it is with those who walk in a manner worthy of their call. So it is with those who are in their behavior, what they are in their state of being. An unlikely blessing producing God-honoring fruit in a land of divisive drought. Copious, it's a good word, copious blessings caught by surprise, sometimes even by those steeped in division. It's sweet, saturating and penetrating everywhere. Do you believe that we could sing a song like this wholeheartedly? Do you believe it? Do you believe, in fact, that this is our song? Do you believe that God's not trying to trick us into beholding something that doesn't exist? The encouragement this morning is to behold. Behold this great gift of God that falls like dew. Behold this great gift of God that is like a fragrant, aromatic, anointing oil of the high priest. Turn to John 17. You can keep your finger in Psalm 133. In closing, I want to read a prayer from Jesus. This is considered a high priestly prayer, and something we, we need to consider as we look at this is anytime you see something about a high priest, as people who live right now, it should cause you to say, Jesus. Like when we're talking about Aaron the high priest, eventually that's meant to lead you to Jesus. Jesus is our high priest, and he does not have to make sacrifices for himself daily. Because he doesn't sin. He's perfect in every way. There's been no other high priest like Jesus Christ. Jesus is our high priest. This prayer is considered a high priestly prayer. And what we need to understand is that as they were set apart for a service at the temple, that his people are the temple now. And there's power in that. Consider yourselves as a temple of God. The the presence of God indwelling a people. Considering Dagon fallen on his face when the ark was present. That kind of power. The men of Beth Semesh just dying. And then the other one saying, who can even look on it? There's power. Jesus, the high priest, his people, a temple, a tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. John 17, he prays this prayer. This is Jesus talking to God. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be, you can just circle every time it says one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And sometimes we need to say it again. Sometimes our prayers seem repetitive, but they're especially appropriate. He says, the glory that you have given me, Father, that I have given to them. 
You hear that? Jesus just said, God, the glory you've given to me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly, not partially, perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed for our oneness. Do you pray for it? Do you consider it? I encourage you to accept this gift from the Father of getting to experience in part what God the Father and God the Son have experienced from before time began. And also consider, according to these verses, that it says, for there the blessing, for there, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. We're experiencing the blessing of life forevermore right now as we dwell in unity. So as we accept this and as we dwell rightly, we're experiencing in part now what we will experience eternally. And we're also experiencing what God and Jesus have experienced perfectly from before time began. That's a blessing. Do not overlook it. Do not slough it. Do not ignore it. Behold it. Behold this gift and anticipate that through this oneness, the world may know the one true God, life forevermore. As we transition to the Lord's Supper and as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to be mindful of the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, and just listen closely, this is a really important part of the service as we gather and dwelling in unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there may be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. We don't naturally have that. God gives it to us. Verse chapter 3, 3 through 4, says, You're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? What Paul is saying is that the excuse, I'm only human. Look, the guy may be mad. I'm out of here. I'm only human. Paul's saying, that's no longer viable. Because you have been divinely blessed with an otherworldly unity. Live in your behavior as you are in your state of being. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's not worth it. Persevere in that unity. James 3.16 says that where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, jealousy and selfish ambition. Y'all ever seen that in church before? Uh, yeah. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So in the manner that when we dwell together in unity, it is both good and pleasant, you see a blessing upon a blessing. In a like manner, when we're trying to dwell in division, it's like a curse upon a curse. From Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small, we're going through it as a staff right now, considering buying copies for the whole body. It's really good. The whole point is you need to need people less so you can love them more, just like God. He says this. Keep this in mind as we are getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. These divisions in the Corinthian church were even apparent during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It wasn't so much that there were fistfights breaking out before communion, but Paul's stated concern was the chaos 
the chaos that resulted from people acting as isolated, selfish individuals rather than as one body. The recurring theme from the book of Judges fits well. Everyone did as he saw fit. Because of these divisions, the Apostle Paul gave some specific directions about the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, it says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourselves. Welch goes on to say, when you're told to examine yourself before the Lord's Supper, what do you think about? Process the thought. When you're told to examine yourself before the Lord's Supper, what do you think about? Most likely, you remember a list of private sins. Shouldn't have done this this week. If you do, that's great. For some people, this is the only quiet moment in their lives, and it's an excellent time for confession of sin and repentance. Yet, as good as that is, this passage, examine yourselves before you partake of this, is saying something more. What Paul is exhorting us to examine is our recognizing the body of the Lord. Are we realizing that the church is one? Are we aware that those with whom we share the supper are the body of Christ? Hear that. Are we aware that those with whom we share this supper in remembrance of God, in remembrance of Christ, are we aware that those with whom we share the supper are the body of Christ, our family? This means that we should remember that it is through Christ's death that we are reconciled to God and each other. In Christ's death, we are reconciled to God and to each other. There's been questions about why do we do this every week? Why is this a weekly occurrence? Does it cheapen it? It's a good question. But I would say in light of this, it's very appropriate to do every week. Are we reconciled to each other? Are we, are we mindful of what the body of Christ is? Who? Are we mindful that it is inappropriate to persevere in anything that is divisive? This keeps us mindful of it, and it causes us to remember Christ, in whom we are united perfectly. He has made us one, and we set our hearts on pursuing unity and love. The Lord's Supper is a great time to pray and plan for oneness. Plan for oneness. In the same way that you seek to show hospitality, don't just be passively hospitable. Plan for it. Have some people over for dinner this week and preserve that unity with our brothers and sisters. It's a time to explore new ways to be kind Explore new ways to be compassionate. Explore new ways to be forgiving. The apostles' exhortation also means that we should repent of sins that have divided God's people. The Bible is unequivocal. If you have contributed to a lack of unity, deal with it now. Revivals should start at the Lord's Supper. Let's take 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24. For I received from the Lord... What I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Verse 25, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, It is indeed a sweet blessing that you would give us in Christ the ability to dwell in unity, that we would get to experience that kind of good and that kind of pleasant. I pray that this morning 
that it would be something that this body of believers is beholding. Pray that as we leave here and we have conversations and as we, um, as we uh, consider the number of different scenarios and things going on in our life that we would just appreciate along the way how sweet it is and how worthy of beholding it is, how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity. We thank you for Christ. Lord, as we um, continue in our time of worship this morning, as we give, I pray that we don't do so um, half-heartedly. I pray that uh, even, maybe even especially in that part of our worship, that we would be wholehearted, that we would not be foolish. We love you very much. We, we live in abundant blessing because of Christ. I pray that you would give us the, um, the mindfulness to persevere in it, uh, thankfully. In Jesus' name, amen.